This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. On today's show, I speak to Usha Daniel, an independent broadcast journalist based in Kuala Lumpur, as we have a wide-ranging conversation on the recently concluded COP28 summit that took place in Dubai. Now, the COP, or short for the United Nations Climate Change Conference or Conference of the Parties, is a critical meeting where governments discuss and commit on how they can limit and prepare for climate change. Good morning, Usha. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just start with expectations. You know, were expectations very high at this COP? Yeah, so expectations were definitely set really high because there was a need for immediate action on climate change and, of course, the conclusion of the first global stock take, which would measure progress towards the Paris Agreement commitment. And I think while expectations were high, they were not fully met. So there's like several um, key topics that we should look into, which is insufficient progress and um if we're talking about insufficient progress, we're talking about synthesis report of national climate plans that underscore the need for greater ambition and urgency to meet the goals of Paris Agreement. So Paris Agreement, 1.5%, keeping our temperatures within below 1.5%. And I think what the world needs now is to move faster in achieving this goal, but it is insufficient, especially with what happened at, at COP28. And one reason being is because of the lack of consensus. And given that this COP itself is hosted in a country that produces fossil fuels. So the lack of consensus were there. So there were controversies that rose up over first the COP28 presidency and as well as the lack of consensus of priority, which slowed down the action. Mm. And I think there's also limited commitments. If we're looking at country groupings like the Powering Passport Alliance, Beyond Oil, Gas Alliance, Clean Energy Transition Partnership. So these are really big, complicated words that are put together. But these are also very, very important because they did not show sufficient momentum at COP28. And if we want to move on to like other topics, if we look at financial transfers, there's inadequate financial transfers. So investors are expected increased financial transfers to developing countries, but the actual outcome is actually limited. So there are a lot of mixed signals on energy when it comes to COP28. And focusing on what you said just now about the oil and gas industry, I mean, it really was center stage throughout this whole discussion with the controversy surrounding the COP28 president being held in United Arab Emirates, Dubai, right, which is an oil-producing country. In a in certain extent, uh, it was some progress, right, that the oil and gas industry were roped in into the discussions, right? But at the same time, you're right, they could stymie the discussions and they did stymie the discussions, Yeah, I think it's just the conversation surrounding fossil fuel, especially where the world's largest climate summit is happening and you put that two together, it just doesn't gel. So when we talk about one of the key producers of fossil fuel, the conversation and the words and facts surrounding phasing out fossil fuel was obviously not a positive word that fossil fuel producing countries would want to hear. So there are a lot of pushbacks. There were a lot of um, controversies. I think on the second or third day of COP, if I'm not wrong, the Guardian released an article that said that um, the COP president, uh, Sultan Al-Jaber, said that there's no signs behind the words facing out fossil, fossil fuel. But it was reported in response to that, that he said that several weeks or months before the COP, 
conversation. So there are signs that that actually proves that fossil fuel can be a significant player in reducing our yep. emission levels to below 1.5. But also, I think because it's produced, it, the summit was put together in the United Arab Emirates and they're part of the oil-producing country. So conversations got quite tense now when it came about speaking about fossil fuels. Yes, it's very interesting also that the conversations got tense over a text, over words, right? And and in this COP and in these negotiations, words really do count. I mean, there was this conversation about phasing out fossil fuel, then it shifted to phase down, and the final text was transition away. Why is this text so important and so meaningful? So I think the words that we put together and string together for the text, especially in the text for GST, the global stock take, which is directly um, linked to the Paris Agreement, these words are very, very important because I think the fossil fuel has dominated discussions around COP28 given the host dependence on them. So the issue of phasing out fossil fuel was like a significant flashpoint with some countries opposing to it due to concerns that it would impact their economies. So the COP28 president's comments that there is no science behind the demand for the phase-out of fossil fuel really sparked controversy. But I think another issue that should be brought up is financing. And when I bring up financing, I think on the first day of COP itself, um, the loss and damage fund was actually rolled out and it did provide some momentum for the conference. But it did fizzle out towards the end, the second week of the the summit itself, because then everyone was already pretty much focused on the GST tax because yeah. loss and damage, which came into, I mean, it it, it was agreed upon at COP twenty seven, was there and done on the first day of COP twenty eight itself. So everything else was slowly focusing on global stock take towards the second week. Yeah, I mean, that's why it was very interesting. Though On the day one, they had this announcement for the loss and damage fund. And one would have expected that that would have created momentum for change. But as you said, right, there was so much uh, space between that fund and actually the final outcome that it just died down, right? And it didn't kind of accelerate the conversations or move the intention for because there were a lot of other things that were not resolved, right? No conversations on Article 6, which were critical to open up and give, give clarity to carbon markets. There wasn't any progress on other financial mechanism. So in the end, although you got a final word text, you didn't really see much concrete outcomes from this COP28. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that would that would be the conclusion <laughs> to it because it has been, if I were to put it in a very, very succinct description of like we we basically been around the Mulberry Bush to come to come back <laughs> to the same circle. And if you see conversations around loss and damage, like when when that announcement was made in Dubai, I immediately called experts in Malaysia to get a response to see like, okay, this is out there. What what can we expect as a country? So analysts are saying that while the loss and damage fund has already provided momentum, we as a country are also concerned because we're not sure if we can access it because at the end of the day, the... Priority still goes to AOCs as well as SIDS, so the, the Alliance of Small Island States as well as the Small Island Developing States because they are at obviously at more risk than countries like ours when it comes to funding. So it's 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 good news on one end, but it's also like 
iffy on the other end because you you there is no timeline of like how are we going to get it when are we going to get it and also i think the conversation now when it comes to the loss and damage fund is there are a lot of people who are unhappy that the world bank is going to facilitate it so that's another conversation altogether that that will definitely perhaps slow down the the loss and damage fund to be distributed or even to find a mechanism of how will it be distributed we're heading into some messages and when we come back we continue our discussion with usha daniel on progress or the lack of from this cop 28 stay tuned to bfm 89.9 Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, Usha Daniel, an independent broadcast journalist, as she gives us a sneak peek behind what transpired at COP28 in Dubai. Now, Usha, it seems there was a very significant Malaysian contingent that participated at this COP. Is this a fair observation? Yes, it is actually accurate. Our Malaysian pavilion were was it's the same size as everyone else's pavilion but ours obviously had a lot of people so from what sources told me on the ground there were about 700 delegates from Malaysia but they weren't all together at the pavilion so it was it was not crowded but it was also to see i think there were a lot of interest in um business relations there were also interest in politicians because i saw several politicians who were there um at the Malaysian pavilion um there was also the negotiation team and the ministry itself so yes it is a fair observation to say that this is a huge delegation that came but also to put it in perspective this is the largest cop that has ever mm-hmm. been so mm-hmm. i think if we were to compare that probably it is not too many people but also there are a lot of malaysians there <laughs> Yeah, what was very interesting with this COP was that I think you said about eighty-five thousand over delegates, and I think a lot of uh, controversy also around the huge oil and gas lobby as well, representing the eighty-five thousand that came in. But just focusing a bit on the Malaysian side and the delegate structure, it is split into blue zone and green zone. And correct me if I'm wrong, the blue zone really is where the 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 meat is, right, where the negotiations take place. But I presume most of the Malaysians that were in the green zone and were very much focused on just getting business deals done. Okay, so from my observation there is a blue zone and a green zone. So the blue zone is where the big the big interviews, the big conversation happens, the negotiation, everything happens in the blue zone, the media center is in the blue zone. And the blue zone is where the pavilions are. So most of the Malaysians that I saw were actually at the blue zone and most of them were blue zone tags which allows you to move between blue zone and green zone but the main agenda are all happening in blue zone so i think there were a lot of conversations that were happening in the blue zone not so much the green zone this is based on my observation mm. i guess as you said right besides just also hammering out some commitments among all the members there's also a lot of business deals done right in this whole process i mean from the outset you saw a lot of countries also work together and create some bilateral commitments to do all these separate arrangements and such right i mean that's also one of the benefits of such a cop that you you get to at least have bilateral multilateral conversations even though it may not yield to anything substantive from a global text standpoint yeah there were multiple mous that were signed at the malaysian pavilion and one in particular i think was the master agreement with malaysia to provide uh 10 gigawatt renewable energy i think in in the coming years there was one key mou that was signed also because given 
that clean energy is it's it's not so much of a buzzword anymore it's a word that's coming into place and into our lives already so clean energy is one thing that is a huge conversation that's happening at COP28 and I think with Malaysian while I was reporting mostly on the happenings at the Malaysian Pavilion as well as the Minister Nick Nazmi, Nick Ahmad and focusing on the text surrounding the global stock take as well as loss and damage I think there were perhaps business deals that were struck other than the MOUs that were signed mm-hmm. but I can't confirm like who or what mm-hmm. met where mm-hmm. But presumably as a journalist, it's such an interesting place to report, um, you know, at at this summit, isn't it? Because there are lots of people that you can have conversations and trying to get a feel of the tension in the room as they try to hammer out and negotiate a text. It's also a very interesting observation as a journalist like yourself, isn't it? That it's it's unparalleled to find uh, a summit such as this anywhere in the world, right? Where you see world leaders converge, discuss something of that great magnitude. It was, this is my first time covering COP, so it was very overwhelming. Mm. Not so much in the information that I was trying to gather, news gather that, but I think it's just the size of the venue. So if I were to describe it, imagine like covering general election, but times 100. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was very hectic. It was running from one corner to the other corner because um, the Malaysian Pavilion to the media center is, quite a long walk. So I would say, how would I describe my walk every day? It's at least 20,000 steps every day to go from one corner to the other corner. But being a journalist covering the UNFCCC um, conference of parties, obviously it is a, it is a experience like no other. It is fun. It is thrilling. You get to learn from so many colleagues and reporters from all around the world where you can actually find stories that you could work together with because like it it really is an amazing experience to learn so much in the in the span of two weeks from people that have past experience covering COP or people who understand the negotiations and who are basically living in the negotiation rooms to journalists on the field where you're like, okay, are we okay today? <laughs> are we lost? Are we damaged? Are we okay? <laughs> Well, funnily, you you say this because I presume like this could be a very technical conference with scientists, with, you know, legal lawyers and with regulators, I think really pouring out really minute details, right, that really make a big difference. Whereas for the layman, all we want to know is as a deal hammered, as a deal hammered, have we got conclusion on something? Have we got some commitment, right? There's a big disconnect, isn't it, between the real technicalities of this COP versus what the general public hope and expect from this summit. So yeah, I think it is a, a fair observation because there is a massive gap. This is coming from my experience being a climate journalist myself, that there is a massive gap when it comes to science communication and how do we turn the conversations and like basically put together the conversations, these technical conversations at COP and turn it into language mm-hmm. where everyone understands. So I think there is... I was given the opportunity to attend COP28 by this fellowship um, by Climate Tracker where they actually train journalists, um, upcoming journalists, experienced journalists on how to report on climate specifically because I think a lot of people need to understand that climate and environmental journalism is very different worlds. They can collide, but it is very different worlds. 
So I hope, I really hope and pray that there is a lot more interest in climate journalism from Malaysian journalists specifically because really learning um, how to report and understanding technical UNFCCC um, papers and articles is an art on its own. And if you were to ask me, if you were to ask me if I would, if I would want to cover more cops, yes, definitely, because it is, it is an experience like no other, but you also have to be able to manage your stress and a lot of walking. <laughs> well, definitely you met your step counts, I think, for the year, based on what I heard. I, the interesting thing will be COP29, which will be in Baku, Azerbaijan, which is also another all-producing country. I wonder why we never learned the lessons about, you know, hosting an all-producing country and repeat the same mistake again next year. Yeah, it was a bit strange though, hearing that 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 update from Dubai itself and you're like, so we're going from another oil, from one oil country to another oil country. But I suppose they were, they wanted. So Baku, Azerbaijan is where COP29 will happen. And then it will be hosted by Brazil, I think, in 2025. Mm. And I think the conversation surrounding fossil fuels will continue to add pressure to the next COP meeting and then yeah. the one after as well, because I think these areas, these countries as well, are strongly either producing or reliant on fossil fuels. Mm. So the pressure will be there. I'm pretty sure the pressure will still be there from small island developing states, from alliance of uh, small developing island states. It is, um, it's a place like no other because these are where huge huge decisions that are made actually does not only is not only made at the plenary hall but it impacts our lives in so many different ways that i think a lot of people will slowly understand and see when malaysia actually develops more climate journalists because we need more climate journalists to tell stories related to cop to the unfccc and what governments and countries can do together to achieve a common goal under the paris agreement Mm. I think it's so important that we don't lose sight of this news and that, it, that the momentum continues post this COP28. In the first question I asked you, expectations were high. I, I wonder if you were to rate from 1 to 10, whether in terms of expectations met, right, with expectations fully met in 10 and 1 hardly met at all, where would you rate this COP28 in terms of meeting the very high expectations of, you know, the global community? I think the expectations, if we're looking at two different perspectives, if we're looking at the developed countries' perspective, obviously they don't have much to lose. So for them, expectations were probably at a seven or eight. Mm -hmm. But if we're looking at smaller nations, if we're looking at AOCs, if we're looking at small island developing states, their expectation would probably went below zero, negative two, because I understand the sadness and the sorrows that come with being in a position where you are extremely vulnerable, but you are also put in a corner where you are helpless and you are not hurt. So it is really a difficult conversation to have. So it's for developing countries and, and vulnerable countries will be at about one or two. And for developed countries, it would be six to seven because, hey, we've got nothing much to lose. That was Usha Daniel, an independent broadcast journalist based in KL, focusing on climate change. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10am news bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9.
You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.